We're sponsored this week by Decode DC, the podcast that gives you an honest look into how politics affect your life. And Decode DC actually makes frequent appearances on this show, so if you're a regular listener of Best of the Left, you've probably heard of them, as well as their great host, Jimmy Williams. He's worked in politics, he's worked as a lobbyist, so he knows his stuff, and he's taking all of that experience and he's explaining how things really work inside and outside of Washington. Decode DC is smart, surprising, it often challenges the conventional wisdom, Like in one of their most recent episodes, they exposed the little-known connection between the Second Amendment and slavery, and there was another one recently that explained why candidates who depend on small-dollar donations, very admirable, uh, so rarely win. So check it out. It is definitely part of my regular listening rotation, and I think you're going to love it. That's Decode DC, available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Next System Project, The David Pakman Show, The Belabored Podcast, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolf, and a TED Talk by Gunnar Branson. The economic system is producing inequality, unemployment, ecological destruction, global warming, and putting more people in prison. That's a system that is out of control. It also seems to regularly produce more war. Doesn't much matter who's elected. It's beyond politics. There's the crisis of inequality, the crisis of climate, and then certainly a lack of a real democracy. 1945 to 1975 are considered the golden years of American capitalism. And from that particular point on, real wages for the average American worker have been stagnant. The great increase in inequality has made this process very hard to change. It's made corporate motives, very short-term motives of corporate growth and the enrichment of the top 1% effective, very hard to beat. The policy space that we have developed to address this crisis is getting us nowhere. People are at a dead end with traditional politics. And so either you build from the bottom up or nothing changes. It's going to take millions and millions of people in motion to to create the kind of system change that we need. And so we have really shifted our attention to looking at more municipal and state-level strategies. There are things that are being done everywhere around the country which, if you brought them together, add up to a mosaic that looks like a different system building on what we know works already in this country. There's a wonderful experiment in Cleveland that, that our group was involved with in which a whole series of worker-owned cooperatives linked together in a community-building corporation, the Evergreen Corporation, right in the middle of one of the poorest neighborhoods. We've started talking about and really expanding the model of community land trusts, which is a strategy of taking land out of the speculative market and creating a process where community residents uh, could actually say what they want to go onto that land. Solar panel on everybody's roof in the neighborhood, all interconnected, That's a farmer's market in electrons. As that comes, it'll have as many interesting impacts on our way of thinking about the world as the development of fossil fuel did. We have to set up credit unions and local banks, very local banks, where our interest payments recirculate. Urban agriculture, every individual, every neighborhood, every locality, every project, every kind of talent matter. If we approach our future through those eyes, then we begin to work at a solution. I think the voices of people of color and women are critical and have to be central to a creation of any new system. And that is because they have in fact endured the most sort of challenges to the current system that exists. And frankly, where we see a lot of innovation happening is in fact in those communities. Worker cooperatives provide an access point for people who otherwise can't enter the economy, who can work together through shared entrepreneurship, through shared workplaces, to enter the economy in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. If we're going to have a transformation that will include everyone, it has to have everyone as part of the leadership. And that's really what I see happening. I think it's an exciting moment, but it's going to take a lot of intellectual heft, a lot of political heft, a lot of organizing, a lot of power to be able to drive to the change we need. When we talk about 
you know, systemic change. We have to figure out how do you get from here to there because we're not just going to, you know, one day, you know, we have corporate capitalism, the next day we're going to have all work our own firms. How do we begin generating from pragmatic developments and new ideas that begin to shape uh, what could become the next system? That's, that's the kind of process I think is happening. When it comes to system change, no one is entitled to say with any confidence, this is impossible. We've seen the impossible happen. Sometimes the system seems so powerful that people feel there's nothing they can do about it. But the great thing about systems is no matter where you intervene, you will make a change that will ripple throughout the system. We are taught in this country that the economy functions on the basis of natural laws, kind of like gravity. And there's nothing you can do to change the way the economy works. Actually, what we understand, and African Americans understand this really well because we have been products in the economy, <laughs> we understand that the economy is a social creation. Movements build in history and large changes occur regularly. And I would be very surprised if we didn't see that what we're now seeing is the long prehistory of the next big systemic shift. It's great to be joined today by Jeff Speck, who is a city planner and also author of Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. Uh, Jeff, I've been doing a lot of reading lately about, you know, I've had this experience where sometimes when I will visit what we would colloquially describe as suburbia, sometimes this applies to sort of more rural areas of the country, et cetera. There's a sort of intangible where it feels to me like something about the way life is arranged there feels sort of not good. And as it turns out, there's been a lot of writing trying to really drill down and assess what some of those components are. So for someone who maybe is not too familiar with this field of study, how can we generally introduce them to some of the concepts that city planners think about that can lead to uh, maybe some some less than perfect sort of feelings in what we describe as suburbia? What types of things do city planners think about? Isn't it interesting how um, well, let me just say first as a city planner, um, you know, I came to city planning as a as a human. Um, and um, interesting. I think as a city planner, <laughs> I still can't help but think about these things in human terms. And um, still the reactions that I have to these sort of places are very similar to what you describe in terms of feelings, actual feelings of comfort and um, happiness in certain types of environments and then feelings of, of um, you know, anxiety or being no place um, in other types of places. The other thing I would say is um, you mentioned some of the rural places giving you this feeling. My guess is that it's developing rural places that give you feelings of discomfort. I, I, I presume you're not troubled by, um, by pure nature or small town America. No, not not particularly, I guess. And sort of the, the thoughts I have when I travel through different types of uh, differently sized cities, rural areas, small towns, et cetera, is sort of thinking back to the earliest of what we could call cities in human civilization. And correct me if I'm wrong, not much about suburbia today resembles the earliest human cities, does it? Correct. And, and let me say, um, where I was where I was going with this was that it's particularly disturbing to me to visit these developing rural places because it's there that you see that the default mode for land development in America is to create these places that we really can't care about hmm. this model of sprawl and I think it's important to distinguish that this is a discussion not about um, cities versus towns or towns versus um, villages, you know, or villages versus country, or even city, even, even you know, the man-made versus nature. It's really a discussion about two different models of development. And the fact that there are only two tested models of development in the world. Now, there are a hundred different ways to make a city, and we've tried many of them, maybe a thousand different ways, um, but there's only two that we've tried by the thousands. And one of them is, the traditional neighborhood, 
which appeared as early as, let's say, um, you know, 10,000 years ago with Jericho and the other first non-nomadic settlements. Hmm. And then it continued all the way as the normal way of building places until the middle of the 20th century. A neighborhood um, can sit alone in the landscape and it's a village. It can grow together with other neighborhoods and make a town. And that town can grow in density, intensity, and size um, and become a city. But all the places that you can name that exist from before, let's say, 1930 or 40, actually, because we didn't do much building. You know, we didn't do much building during the Depression or during the, during the uh, Second World War. But almost any place you can name that was developed before mid-century was developed according to this neighborhood model. And so um, uh, we planners define neighborhoods as being uh, compact, diverse, and walkable. Almost any neighborhood you study is about a five-minute walk from edge to center or a half mile across with some variety, but that's a pretty steady model throughout history and across cultures. Um, in neighborhoods, and this is what makes them neighborhoods, you find places to live, places to work, places to recreate, places to worship, places to go to school, places to shop, and they're all within walking distance. And, and Jeff, drive, if I may, if I may, just to sort of take this piece by piece, you seem yeah. to sort of be getting at uh, what was number one on my list, which is this concept of single use zoning in suburbia, yes. right? Which which prevents yeah. the possibility of what you're describing now. Yeah, and I think it's important to break it all down to say, okay, how can we distinguish between these two types of places? One being the traditional neighborhood and the other being suburban sprawl is simply that sprawl was a whole new model invented not inherited, you know, not, not something that developed naturally in response to man's needs, but something was invented after the advent of mass automotive use around the presumption of universal automotive dependency. Mm. It wasn't so much seen as a dependency, it was something we celebrated, right? We had this tremendous new tool of this automobile, and we were going to um, celebrate it and design our world around it and in so doing, we kind of inadvertently created this landscape where, A, it's not efficient or in any way pleasant to get around any other way except driving. And uh, B, it's been incredibly expensive, incredibly, um, you know, doesn't pay for itself in terms of the infrastructure you have to lay at this low-density, autocentric way um, to support it. And then it's actually very bad for our, our economy and our health and that we are, um, you know, spending tremendous amount of times, spending a tremendous amount of time and a tremendous amount of money getting around in vehicles when actually um, before we were dependent on these cars, we were dedicating a lot less of our, um, of our time, of our money and our health to moving around. And what I mean by health is, um, you know, clearly evident in this country, a um, obesity crisis that epidemiologists are blaming on the sprawl settlement pattern, an epidemic of car crashes that's killing as many people as, you know, it's the single greatest killer of healthy Americans, um, asthma killing three times as many people as it did in the 90s, almost all coming from car exhaust. Um, and then a whole bunch of social ills that have been well documented, particularly by Robert Putnam in his book, Bowling Alone, where he, he uh, found out that every 10 minutes you add to your commute, you are 10% you are less likely to participate in activities within your community. Hmm. So this great kind of social emptiness as well that's come from all the hours that we've tied ourselves to driving around. So you've talked a little bit about the single use zoning and sort of described that qualitatively. And I'd love for you to give our audience sort of an overview. Some of the car related dynamics of suburbia, there's this tiered or hierarchical traffic distribution, right? The local road into the main road, into the highway yeah. and often interfacing with the highway in a less than ideal way. And also the entire sort of parking lot paradigm of suburbia is also a big factor here, right? I mean, give, give us a sort of overview of that. Well, the, um, the third aspect of the neighborhood that I was going to mention, it being walkable, you know, compact, diverse, and walkable, um, is a function principally of the fact that there's a street network, 
what's called a networked system of blocks, right? And one of the things that distinguishes, if you picture kind of pure suburbia in your head, not the suburbs, but suburbia, auto-oriented suburbia in your head, one thing you might realize is that it doesn't really have a block structure. It has what's called a dendritic structure or a branching system, where most trips, if you're actually getting anywhere, go from the local road or the parking lot to the collector road, to the arterial, to the highway, and then back down again. And actually, one of the advantages, I'm speaking a little bit facetiously, but one of the advantages of this system is that you can actually map every trip because each trip can only go one way. And you can be absolutely sure that people, when they're getting from point A to point B, will take a certain path because they only have one choice. Now, the great irony of sprawl is that this system that was developed around automobile use and meant to optimize automobile use is actually worse for driving. Because when you have a network, you have many different paths from any destination to any other. Um, in the dendritic system, if you have one, you know, if one car has an engine fire on the collector road, your entire community shuts down for the day, right? But in a network, of course, there's multiple paths from anywhere to anywhere else. The other thing, of course, is that a network um, supports walking much better than this dendritic system in which, as you describe, there are these large areas of single use that are big and they're separated from each other. And therefore, um, you know, what you can get to on foot is extremely limited. I was once um, interviewed by a radio uh, show guy who, no, it was television because he had cameras. It was like the local news in, in uh, the Miami area. And he thought it'd be fun. This is after my book uh, with, with um, Duane and Plater Zyberg called Suburban Nation came out. And he thought it would be fun to interview me in his local coffee shop, but to walk to the coffee shop and meet me there. And he arrived like an hour after he left his house as this sweaty, really hot, unpleasant mess <laughs> as, and, as intended because it was just, you know, he was living in a community where actually no one had ever considered um, the walk as a possibility. And let me say then, coming full circle, that this conversation isn't one between city and town and country and nature. It's one between whether your landscape is dependent on automobiles or facilitates the use of other ways of getting around. And that's the best, clearest way to distinguish suburban sprawl from other, all other models, not to confuse it with the nice turn-of-the-century suburbs um, and many other good models that we have. Hmm. Is the average citizen required to use a car to live their daily lives. Now, many people in cities, of course, have cars, but the car is more of an instrument of freedom than a prosthetic device. And it's something that we use uh, on occasion, like me living here in Brookline, Massachusetts, a, a very close-in suburb surrounded by Boston, right on the green line where the train runs in my street out there. Um, you know, we have a car. We have a place to put it in the street. And we use it, but mostly we're walking, taking transit, biking, getting around other ways because our environment allows that. Now, as to parking lots, um, you know, clearly, if you are designing a, uh, a city around the presumption of everyone driving and parking where they go, you end up dedicating a tremendous amount of your landscape to the storage of automobiles. And in most American cities, the single greatest land use is vehicular parking. The book, I will tell you once again, is Walkable City, How Downtown Can Save America One Step at a Time. Now, Jeff, if only the green line was reliably faster than walking, that would also be uh, uh, something else that I, I would really cheer on. We've been speaking with Jeff Speck, uh, absolutely fascinating topic, and I hope people check out your book. Thanks so much for talking to us. Walking man, walking man Any other man stops and talks, but the walking man walks. Well, the frost is on the pumpkin, and the hay is in the barn, yeah. And happy's come to rambling on, stumbling around, drunk down on the farm. And the walking man walks. 
John Nichols and Robert McChesney have been working together for some time, writing prescient critiques of the state of the media, the ability of billionaires to buy our elections, and much more. Their new book, People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy, is one they've called their most important yet. Recently, I hosted an event in New York with John Nichols, who is also the author on his own of Uprising, How Wisconsin Renewed the Politics of Protest from Madison to Wall Street, to discuss the book, the role of technology in the changing shape of work, and what we can do to make sure that our economic and political futures are equitable and just. This is an edited selection from that conversation. So I think we're going to start off by, John just told me that he could summarize this book in a minute. I don't think I'm going to hold him to one minute, but we're going to let you do a little rundown about what's in this book, and then I will ask you some very difficult questions about it. So our previous books that Bob and I wrote dealt with media and democracy and, and got a very respectful and pleasant reception in the United States. And they also, uh, you know, were accepted by academia and blah, blah, blah. But weirdly enough, in Europe, people actually thought this might be relevant to policymaking. Unlike in America, where it's just like, oh, it's interesting to talk about media and democracy. Those are esoteric, fascinating topics. But in, in Europe, they actually thought this is important. So we started getting invited to go to these incredible international conferences. And I want to tell you, the mineral water is fabulous. And everybody wears these really great suits. And uh, there's a lot of security and swans. And so we're at these conferences, and we're talking about the future. And they would let me say a few things about democracy or media or something. And, you know, I would then, of course, having said my piece, which, you know, was greeted politely, sit back and listen to everyone else. And we were with the CEOs of major companies. We were with, uh, you know, heads of think tanks. Really the people who are at the heart of debates about the future of not just this planet, but the people who live on it, what they will do for a living, how they will experience what comes next. And what fascinated me was they were all talking about how many jobs they were going to eliminate. And they actually had these fabulous screens where they would talk about whole industries and, and they would flash up and say, well, today to build a car, you would need this many people. But as we move through the next stages of digital progress, we will be able to build that car with a handful of robots and one guy doing this. And then they were talking about, you know, it used to take 60 people to bring a ship into a port. It can now be done by one guy pressing a button. And they kept talking. It's interesting. It was always a guy. But the bottom line was we kept eliminating, eliminating, eliminating. And I thought to myself, this is a very robust conversation. And then I would go to these other conferences. And it was this robust conversation. It was this incredibly engaged, focused conversation about a future where there were fewer and fewer jobs. And where the jobs that remained were, sounded like really not so great. Like you got to like take your private car and troll around the streets of big cities looking to see if anybody wanted to pay you to give them a ride. Or... Take, a, take an apartment in your, I know this is unimaginable that this could happen, but take an apartment, you know, and like maybe you have a room in your apartment, you can rent it out to people who are like traveling to the town. And it's like all these things of, you know, like where you would cobble together a life off the scraps of what, you know, once was a society. And, and, and I thought to myself, this is interesting to me because I cover politics in America and I watch what, how the media covers issues. I watch what politicians say, and I'm struck by the fact that nobody is talking about this. Like our political, this is like a really big deal, right? I mean, sort of like a jobless future, or maybe not jobless, but really like not so great job future and a lot of other problems, and nobody's talking about it. And I thought, you know, this might be a good idea for a book. And then I came back, Bob and I were working on another book, and I started talking to him about it, and he said, this is so weird. I was just in Norway doing a conference, and that's all anybody was talking about. And so, long story being short, we scrapped the book we were working on, and we decided to write a book about the danger of a jobless economy and a citizenless future. It's not that we fear technology. We love technology. We are marinated in it. We use it all the time. However, what we fear is that our technological future and our digital and automation changes that will take place, that are taking place, 
that they will be handed down to us from on high by the CEOs of multinational corporations, by the heads of think tanks, and by tech utopians who fantasize that somehow we're going to be able to work this all out by developing a new app. There isn't an app to get us out of this thing. This is the bottom line reality. And it is a pure fantasy to believe that in a capitalist society, you would develop technologies that allow you to eliminate labor and then come up with some new way to create more jobs. That's not going to happen. It's illogical. And if we recognize that, then we get to the core of the book, the simplest core. And that is, why don't we say, cool, that's excellent. The technology was supposed to free us from drudgery. It was supposed to give us better, wholer, more, more wonderful lives. That's what Tesla promised. That's what Einstein promised. That's what Edison promised. Nobody who ever was inventing stuff said, oh, this is going to really make your future awful. No, they said it's going to make your life better. And what we suggest is that the change is coming. We're in the thick of it right now. It's already happening. And it is time for us to move up to that table, push some of these CEOs and think tank folks and tech utopians aside, put our chair right there. And let's just, let's just say, you know, we, our boots are a little muddy and our hands are maybe a little dirty, but let's, let's put them down on the table and say, you know what? I would like to be a part of this discussion. I would like to be a part of deciding what kind of future I have. And if there's a great deal of wealth and progress and benefit to come from technological progress, I want a piece of the action. So that's what we say. People get ready. Come on. Just There is a change of coming. This train's coming through. You better get on board. But don't get on board as a passenger. Let's elbow our way up front and become the engineers. Send a message. Send a message. We are the ones that are caught in the wreckage. Send a letter to the captain. Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club. They sell high-quality razors and shaving products directly to you, which means no more hassling with the drugstore and their locked-up razor fortresses or sky-high prices, because Dollar Shave Club is about one-third of the price of the greedy razor corporations, and they ship everything directly to your door. Dollar Shave Club is so confident in the quality of all of their products that right now they're going to give you your first month for free when you join the club. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com slash best, pick out the razor that works for you from their lineup of amazing blades, and that's all there is to it. For a first-class shave, choose their executive blade and combine it with their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for the smoothest shave ever. Here's your chance to see why over 3 million members already love Dollar Shave Club. Just pay for shipping, and after that, it's a few bucks a month. No long-term commitment, no hidden fees. There's no reason not to do it, so get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash best. That's dollarshaveclub.com club.com slash best send a message send a message we are the ones that come in the wreckage let's suppose we had a rational society that decided not only what it wanted to have produced goods and services housing food clothing transportation entertainment whatever but also took ecological environmental considerations seriously not to further damage the ozone layer not to further contribute to global warming not to damage the earth the water the air all of that that you all know very well then it might be decided democratically one hopes to put to the mass of people the question can we find ways to be more respectful, to be better able to preserve the natural environment we depend on than we have been? And what are the implications for work? And such a deliberation could decide, yes, we can get by very well with much less stuff. And that will preserve our energy resources, it will preserve the health and well-being of our natural environment. And it has another benefit. If we produce less and use up less of our earth, we will also therefore have to work less. 
And this would become appealing to the American people if they knew that the benefit of ecological consciousness would include sharing more leisure. Let me explain very concretely. In the United States, and indeed in many parts of the world that are copying the United States, we move people around by means of private automobiles to an extraordinary extent. And private automobiles are notorious for the deaths and injuries they cause in traffic accidents, for the enormous waste of energy that is involved in moving one person in one vehicle as opposed to 20, 30, or 40 people in a bus or a train, etc. The pollution caused by the private automobile far exceeds what public transportation would provide. So let's see. Were we to decide to save on the energy waste and the pollution and the death and injury that the private automobile mode of transportation entails, and if we were to move instead to beautiful, well-prepared, high-quality, frequent public transportation in all the urban and suburban areas where most people in most advanced countries now live, we would be able to give everybody several hours of week less work. We wouldn't be making those cars anymore because we wouldn't need them. We would be making, and it takes many fewer hours, it would be making trains and buses and vans instead. And if that, here we go now, if that cut in the production of automobiles was accomplished by sharing the benefit that we don't need to spend umpteen million hours producing the cars we no longer rely on, if that were shared, then the mass of people would be able, by the same decision, to save on the waste of energy involved in the car, to save on the death and injury involved in a car-based transportation system, to save on the pollution of air and water that wasteful car production has always meant, and at the same time give themselves fewer hours of labor which would be shared across all industries and not just the automobile. Therefore, everybody would continue to work They'd have less hours. And you know something? Because of the savings in money from going from a private to a public transportation system, even the fact that the fewer hours you worked meant you got a little bit less pay, it wouldn't impact your standard of living because if you think about it, you would be saving a fortune moving to high-quality, mass-produced, mass transportation from the enormous expenses of your private car with its private insurance and its private excessive fueling, etc., etc. Our dependence on oil, all of it could be changed. There are other examples. Group housing is much cheaper than individual housing. What about that? and the savings in labor that could be shared by everybody if we understood the wisdom, the ethics, and the democratic appeal of sharing the work, just like we should share the unemployment if it happens. Substituting collective child care for the individual child care we now rely on in this country, at least. Providing subsidized, inexpensive, healthy, publicly provided food for people to pick up on their way home rather than spending time having lots of little producers making lots of little food along the way. Duplicating the effort needlessly and inefficiently. The examples are legion. I don't want to get lost in the specifics. I want the big point to be made. In a rational society, here's how the economic system would be planned. 
figure out how much stuff we as a society want, take into account our needs, our desires, our pleasures, take account of the economic and the ecological environment we're in, figure out how many hours of work it would take to produce the goods and services that reflect our respect for our individual needs and wants and our collective dependence on nature, and then divide the work equally among all the able-bodied adults so we all participate in doing the work that we all together decided we as a community want. That's a better way. It's a more rational way. What it doesn't allow for is a tiny group of people to make decisions based on their own profits, even if they flaunt the needs and desires of a democratic society. The most egregious example is how I'll end this conversation. Once upon a time, clothing in the United States, for example, was largely made in the United States. The shirt, the pants, the shoes, the socks you wore were produced a few miles from where you purchased them. That means that very little energy was wasted and very little pollution resulted from moving clothing from the producer to the consumer. Fifty years ago, American capitalist enterprises involved in the production of clothing made a decision driven by profitability. They decided it was more profitable to move to China or Bangladesh, or Mexico, or Africa, or, in any case, far away in most cases. China is the prime example. They decided that they could make more money because they could pay Chinese workers a small fraction of what they had come to need to pay American workers, that they could find exemptions for all kinds of expenses that they had here, but that they could avoid in China or Bangladesh or Vietnam or Pakistan or wherever. They left because the profit motive of capitalism drove them to do that. So now, as you all know, your pants, your shirts, and most everything you wear comes from places thousands and thousands of miles away. To cover all of that mileage, energy has to be used to fuel the ships, the trucks, the trains, the planes that bring that all to you. And the burning of that energy leads to pollution of the air and the water. Nobody cared about that for decades as people got sick, as people who didn't need to died. We were all victims, and I'm not just talking about those who lost their jobs in the clothing industry. They suffered too. But everybody suffered, and the environment suffered because private profit-driven capitalism works that way. My point is simple. To avoid that kind of economic development, profitable for the few, a disaster for the many and for nature itself, we need to change the way we make decisions and what the bases and goals of our decisions are. Sharing unemployment is not only something we should do as we cope with the irrational instability of capitalism. It's also a way to understand how we can win the majority of our fellow citizens to a program to make ecological preservation a central part of our political future. Because we can go to the people and say, 
environmental protection is not a threat to your job. Not protecting it is a threat. Going in that direction, finding ways to produce less and to use up less of our natural resources is also a way to increase leisure as we share, for the first time really, the benefits of a more rational economic system. My name is Gunnar Branson, and I love real estate. Real estate is my life. It's all of our lives. It is the collective impulses and desires and needs of all of us expressed in the world around us, in the environment, the built environment, an environment that is almost invisible to all of us because it's everywhere. It's where we live. It's where we work. It's where we play. And if you learn how to read what is happening in real estate, you can start to understand a little bit better about what we are doing as a people, as a civilization. And by understanding what we're doing, you can start to anticipate the future. All very exciting. <laughs> I know, I know. You were really, really excited about the commercial real estate talk that was at the end of the TED conference. Again, I apologize, but it is much more interesting than you think it might be. In order to explain a little bit about how you can read real estate and about how you can understand that actually real estate is about to go through one of the most incredible changes it has experienced since 1450, I'm going to have to go back a little bit and tell you a little bit of theory. So again, forgive me, I know the cocktail awaits. Back in 1968 or so, Gaston Bachelard, a philosopher, wrote a book called The Poetics of Space. And I apologize to anyone here who is French for my bad pronunciation. He wrote about something called desire lines. Quite simply, desire lines are the lines we leave behind us as we go through the world, as we make the world work for ourselves, as we do the things that we want to do. We leave a line behind us. And we've all seen them. We all know exactly what they are. We've all seen in a park, in a college campus, desire lines. These are the paths that we leave in the grass, right? Where everyone's taking a shortcut to get to where they're trying to go. What I love about desire lines is they will not be resisted. Have you ever noticed a desire line where they take a big rock and they put it right in the center of the desire line? And then you have two desire lines. <laughs> it drives architects crazy because they make these beautiful paths made out of concrete and stone and crushed gravel that we're all supposed to travel in geometric patterns between buildings. We love geometric patterns, don't we? We all love going down the lines of our architectural fantasies. Well, after this idea was developed, a lot of smart architects have started to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to build those anymore. I'm just going to create an entire campus of buildings, and then I'm going to put grass everywhere in between them, wait a year, and then put my path right where people want it to be. That's called following a desire line. And when you have a deep, big, muddy path, that's a big path. A lot of people are traveling there. When you have a light one, you create a little footpath. It's quite simple. Reading desire lines, once you learn how to do it, is actually the easiest thing in the world to do because what you're doing is looking for the tracks that we leave behind us. Now, this has been done to great effect on things big and small, on desire lines that we're leaving around us all the time. I want you to think about a particular place of desire that we've talked a lot about today. Music. Cast our minds back, way back to ancient times. Oh, I don't know, 2000. When we listened to music on discs, and before that, records, 
Remember records? Vinyl. Old school, right? Well, something happened. And that was that someone really smart realized that there was a desire line in play. And that was that we were not buying albums. We were not buying records or CDs. We were buying songs. And you all know this story. We all like to look down our noses at those idiots at Warner Brothers or uh, Sony Music. And oh, how foolish. They didn't understand the internet was coming. Well, they've been selling a lot of records for a long time. They were a lot smarter than us. They were a lot richer than us. They sold, uh, back in 2000, total sales of CDs, cassettes, and vinyl was somewhere just shy of $37 billion worldwide. $37 billion. If I am making $37 billion a year, I must be right. And look at all the record demand that there is. And the record demand keeps coming. There's so much demand for records. No, there is demand for songs. And iTunes came out and within five days sold a million songs. And then 200 million within a year. One and a half billion by the summer of this year. And they took half the business away. Half. In less than 10 years. If that doesn't scare anyone who's selling anything, it should. Because the instant that you are selling something different from what people are buying, you are vulnerable. Because desire will always win. We will always make things work for ourselves. And a problem and a question that I've been asking in commercial real estate for a long time is that we sell square footage. So whether you are buying space for your coffee shop or you're buying an apartment or a home or you're buying office space, you're actually looking for something that you need. You need very much. You need a space in order to do the things that you do. And all we're selling in real estate is square footage. We tell you how much it costs per square footage. We tell you how much square footage. And yet, somehow, you're making that space work for yourself. And it's marvelous, I think, the way that we adapt this imperfect thing called square footage into something that we somehow approximate life with. It's an exciting kind of way that we are selling the wrong thing and people are buying another. So, what is going on? How are we living that is not necessarily jibing with our current real estate? A lot of you are familiar with Moore's Law. There's a lot of very intelligent people who are much smarter here than I am. There's something called Moore's Law that came about when Dr. Moore realized that every 18 months, there seemed to be a doubling of transistors on a single chip. And that kept happening. At first, back in the 1960s, there weren't that many. So it didn't seem like much, and it wasn't really impacting all of us in the room. But by the time we got to the 90s, it was impacting all of us because we were packing more and more chips or transistors on each chip, and we were able to do amazing computer power with a very low amount of cost and low amount of space. So we had computers, we had the internet. All these things started developing in the 90s. And then we went mobile. And suddenly, we all have in our pockets enough capacity to run the Apollo space program. I know that's a funny little kind of weird metaphor, but it's kind of true. There's a lot of memory sitting inside every one of your pockets. And in there is an amazing amount of stuff, because along with Moore's Law, guess what's happening? We're transitioning from atoms to electrons. And the difference in size between an atom and electron is, might as well be the difference between the sun and the moon. There's so much difference in space. And let me illustrate a little bit about how that could impact us. Any of you remember getting out of college? Did you have a record collection? Did you? Uh, those of us that are old like me, record collections, book collections. Any of you have book collections? Okay. How much of your apartment, remember that first wonderful apartment you had? How much of that do you think you took up with books and records? A third, generally, depending on how acute you were and how much stuff you collected. In other words, we're not living in our space. A third of our space we're using to hold our stuff. And what happens when your stuff all fits here? People in their 20s are buying more than we did but they're also buying less. It all fits into one of these. It's amazing. Uh, you know, a lot of people I know that own uh, and manage apartment buildings are amazed at how fast people in their 20s are moving. When I was in my 20s, remember moving? The amount of beer you had to give people and pizza just to help you move? All your crud? They move in an afternoon. Oh, am I packed? I guess I'm packed. So these are going away. 
They're all fitting into this. Interesting thing is happening. The average apartment floor plan, this is what it looked like five years ago. Here's what the new ones are looking at now. We're taking about 100 square feet of space out of apartments. By the way, this apartment rents for more money. <laughs> and it's a much nicer place. It just has less room for all that stuff. And people are not buying it on a per square footage basis. Notice, I'm a real estate guy, so I'm saying 578 square feet. But the person buying it is buying a beautiful bedroom, an incredible living room, and a very small kitchen because I don't cook, really, and I don't want to pay for it. But I do get an incredible lounge downstairs. The new apartment buildings that are being built, by the way, they're not being built in Chicago because our economy is still recessed here. But in Washington, D.C., where there's lots of government money, these kinds of buildings are going up, apartment buildings for young people, and what they're doing is they're putting a boutique hotel environment. And where are people living? They're living in the lobby. That's where they're watching TV on their pad. That's where they're reading a book. That's where they're listening to music together. Because an interesting thing is happening in real estate. Because it's an interesting thing that's happening amongst people. We are getting smaller and we are getting closer. All these doomsayers that say that these digital devices are making us antisocial, it's making us more social. Because it allows us to connect to more people, more things, more ideas than ever before with less space. And space, you see, costs money. That's why we all moved out to the suburbs, so we could get more space to put our stuff. But if we're in the city with no stuff, we have the same amount of space. And now we get to be with people. And people are where we get the ideas, like in this meeting right here. People are where we get excited. We like being with each other. It excites the neurons. It gets us going. It allows us to live and express ourselves in ways we never could before. Offices, the same thing is happening. The typical office lease for a law firm today, over the last three years, has been a third less than it was 10 years ago. In other words, a third less space per person, per lawyer, than ever before. Now, this is important because lawyers are really boring and very predictable. And lawyers like big, expensive office buildings. In fact, most of the money made in our big cities today is made off of law firms. God bless them. But here's the problem. The reason lawyers took all that space is they had big libraries filled with law books. Now they have one shelf with law books so they can be shown on video with the law books behind them. <laughs> they use a database. So a third of their space was taken up by books that are now gone. Every time they're signing up for a new lease, they're getting rid of that space because it's just very expensive insulation. Remember these? You know, for fun. Okay, just for fun. Next time you're in an office, a really fancy office, go by and just start looking inside the file cabinets. See what you see. Generally, probably for me, a non-scientific survey is mostly what you find is shoes. Because <laughs> we've been collecting all these shoes, they're filling up our apartments, and we have to put them in the file cabinet. I don't know. Lots of shoes and files from, you know, the old days, 1995, when we actually had files. So they don't have as much file space as they did before. And they also don't have as much support staff. And more important, they don't live in their offices anymore. So you talk to a lawyer today and you say, listen, is it still like it was in the 90s when you lived there 24-7 and you went there on a Saturday afternoon and everyone was there? And they'll say, no, it's empty on the weekends because they all have laptops. They're still working around the clock because God bless them, lawyers work. They work all the time. But now they can work at home, and they'd rather do that than come into the office. So they need space to have meetings. They need space to collaborate. They need to connect somewhere. They just don't need quite as much space for the stuff. This may be the look of the office of the future. Small floor plate, lots of windows, fun to go to not the big IBM tower that we had before. The space is looking better than it ever looked before because you can afford it now. So my per square footage cost goes way up, right? If I'm renting space from someone, oh, it used to be $50 a foot, now it's $100 a foot. Terrible, terrible, terrible. 
Yeah, but I need less than half of what I used before. Less space, more living. Less space, more living. I want to take you back in time. We've seen this before. This huge transformation in our real estate environment that is occurring now, it is happening now, right under our noses. And real estate investors are starting to see where things could go because people are using space in a different way. And I, by the way, I didn't even talk about retail. I don't have enough time. But retail is completely transformed in ways that we can't even imagine. Maybe we're selling a seat. Maybe we're selling a club membership in an apartment. Maybe, you know, so you can change apartments every six months. I don't care as long as you stay in my apartment building or in my neighborhood or in my buildings. If I own buildings in multiple countries and you need to change where you live every six months, fine. You're in the club. The zip car of apartments, kind of an interesting idea. I don't know. I don't know if that'll happen or not, but I do know it is changing. And here's why I know it's changing. Back in 1450, give or take a year or two, back then they didn't keep the records the same way. A guy named Gutenberg said, you know what? I found a cheap way to make Bibles. This is a great technology. I'm going to print these Bibles. Funny thing happened with those Bibles. It was just the beginning. We started printing books and more important, leaflets. You could cheaply print a single pager and you could nail it to the door of your local church. The dark side to that, by the way, and we're all familiar with that, was 100, 150 years of brutal religious war throughout Europe. But on the plus side, <laughs> it changed the way we looked at the world, and it certainly changed real estate. Before that, there was no real estate business. The king owned the real estate, you know, and the rest of us had huts and carts, right? Then we wanted to read books, but in order to get the books, you had to store them somewhere dry, right? So you had to have a dry place to put it. So you had to create shops and warehouses. Not only that, you had to manufacture it. So you had to create factories to manufacture the paper in order to print it. And you needed to have stores, you needed to have retail, and lo and behold, you needed to have universities because people had to learn how to read in order to read the things that you had there. So you created university towns. Oh, and if you had a town, that meant you had to sell people stuff. So you suddenly had a civilization made up of towns, not just of kings. You had merchants, you had buildings, you had schools, you had offices, you had apartments, you had real estate. We were created by the printing press. Those of us that live in real estate. Then a funny thing happened. Back in the 20th century, I know, way back when, someone said, you know what? I can help our spies get information across to each other, and I can help our university researchers get some information back and forth through this ARPNET. It became the Internet. The Internet then was adopted for other things, including crazy people and scenting, you know, war, which I'm a little worried about. But also, the greatest period of literacy our globe has ever known. More people read than ever before. More people have access to every book ever written. More people are able to think and connect to other people than ever before. And more people want to live in cities. And more people need real estate to do what it should do for them. Our world looks like this now. It's an exciting time to be. And it's an exciting time to be in real estate because all of us are going to have less space and more life. We just heard clips today from the Next System Project who drew the connection between changing our cities and the changes we need in our entire system. David Pakman had a discussion with Jeff Speck about where suburbia went terribly wrong. The Belabored podcast talked with John Nichols about the fight against the possible future of a jobless economy and a citizenless democracy. Richard Wolf on Economic Update discussed the social and ecological benefits of rethinking how we organize our economy. And finally, we just heard a TEDx talk by Gunnar Branson about the changing landscape of real estate and our changing relationship to the spaces we occupy. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and now we'll hear from you. 
Hi, Jay. This is Paula. I'm calling from Reno, Nevada. I'm calling in response to your response on episode 1044 about your disregard for corporate media. I do not in any way, shape, or form disagree with you on your reaction to uh, corporate media, your nausea, your complete dislike, and your total disregard for it. I 100% agree with all of that. However, I do check in to a show like GMA on a daily basis every morning for about five minutes because I want to check out the headlines. And I don't do that because I want to check out the headlines. But I want to know what is being regurgitated to the rest of the American population. So while I do get all of my actual information from independent media, I do want to know what the rest of the world is actually checking out. And I don't mean the world, but I mean the public who doesn't subscribe to actual true journalism. So in that sense, what I really want to know is what they're being fed, what their talking points are, and then I want a place to jump off from to disagree with what is being fed to them. So in that sense, I disagree with you, but for the most part, I completely agree with you, and I hope that made some sort of sense. Anyway, I truly enjoy the show. I can't tell you how much this has affected, how much I have tried to form my views, or rather has actually helped me to inform my views. In any case, you're doing a great job, and please, please do keep up the work. I love the show. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, we just heard from Paula there, and as, as unclear as it may have sounded... I think it's actually crystal clear that Paul and I agree entirely. Mainstream media, obviously not fit for human consumption, but you may want to check in on it just to kind of know what they're doing, know what they're saying, so you can get a better understanding of the rest of society and all the people who actually do watch that sort of thing. Be ready for conversations that may come up, that that sort of thing. I'm just not normal in, in that sense. I luckily don't have to have those kind of conversations. I don't I don't have an office I go to and, and a water cooler to stand around where people are going to ask me my thoughts on whatever inane ridiculousness that's being talked about on cable news. That just doesn't happen in my life. So so luckily I I don't have to do that. And in terms of keeping tabs on the mainstream media, I, I can sort of do that by proxy because progressive media has made it a staple to criticize mainstream and right-wing media for as long as I've been listening to this stuff, more than a decade. Uh, And so if you want to know what's wrong with mainstream media, uh, pretty much you can find someone who will curate all the all the best bits and, um, and yell about it for your pleasure. So that's uh, how I keep tabs on the mainstream media. And luckily, I just don't need to know more than that because the nature of this show is such that I don't have to be up to date. And I cannot tell you how much pleasure I get from that. Uh, although it does create some strange and awkward conversations when when I meet someone who knows what I do, but they, you know, they don't know the intimate details of my day-to-day life. Like I was on a conference call uh, recently with, you know, so there was a couple of people on the line, but we were waiting for a fourth person. And so the, you know, the one person, they, they knew, you know, what I did and everything. And, and they were saying, oh, so, you know, that, uh, that debate recently, like you must have a lot to talk about. And I thought, nope, <laughs> I sure don't. And I'm really glad I don't have to. I watched it, but I don't have to talk about it. That's not what my show's about. I don't have to fill, you know, an hour or two or three every day with news. Uh, So I get to pick and choose and I get to focus on things that really matter, not the 
you know, tiny minutia. So, uh, you know, so I have a conversation like that. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's not really what I do, <laughs> luckily. So that's kind of, kind of a normal conversation. W- when it gets awkward is when people ask me my thoughts. Uh, it, this is the very rare instances when I'm at like a conference or, you know, meet a listener or something and they ask, hey, you know, what do you think about this thing that just happened? I'm like, I don't, I hadn't even heard about that yet. I'm a little behind on my listening. I got so much to listen to. I'm like two days behind. Whatever happened today or yesterday, I haven't even heard of it yet. Uh, so for a media curator, expert kind of guy like I'm supposed to be, I, I, I find it endlessly amusing how ignorant I am of the news, <laughs> at least the up-to-the-date news, compared to pretty much anyone else in my position. So yes, if you feel like in your everyday life you need to you know be up to date on the news or be ready for those conversations or, or you know be ready to have those arguments when you go to work or wherever else, then then yes, by all means check in on the mainstream media. But like a vaccines amount, you know, inoculate yourself, but not too much or you'll get sick. Keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. Every once in a while, we go through these lulls. We don't get very many calls. Uh, On average, I would say I get about a dozen calls a week. Nice, nice healthy amount. It means that I get to, you know, pick and choose uh, just the best ones that get in the show. But it means that there aren't like dozens and dozens of people getting left on the cutting room floor, which is nice. Uh, This week, for whatever reason, I don't know, we've had two calls. So if you've got thoughts on this or anything else, uh, there's no waiting. You go straight to the head of the line. Be part of the show. 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us out in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and wonder what we're doing